Well, please turn your Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And again, of course, we're in this topical study. It's not my intention to explain this portion. Uh, but we read, and we read Genesis. We've read Ephesians chapter 5. And this really is the third really standout portion of Scripture in the subject of marriage and the family. Again, just to preface the remarks again by reminding you what we said two weeks ago. Now, I understand the and gathering here, um, the application will vary from pew to pew. For some of you, it has direct bearing upon your own uh, marriages. For others who are singles or, or widows, again, the application is different. But in all things, please make these matters matters of prayer for our church family. That you pray the one for the other in light of the word of God. That's how you're to pray. You're to pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so as you understand the will of God for our families, so you can pray down through the directory and pray particularly for husbands, wives, for parents in light of the revealed will of God. And so the application, this pertains to each and every person. I should also say that I am not seeking to give an exhaustive study on the family. In a similar fashion, we didn't do an exhaustive treatment of the church in the last year. I don't plan on being exhaustive in a study of the family. And this is a course on ethics. And so it's dealing with the issues, the, if you like, the foundational principles that then govern the practice. And so at times I'll apply the practice, uh, but I'm not trying to deal with every single issue. And so if there are things in your mind that you, you think, well, what about this or that, please uh, drop me an email. And so we've done in the past, I've, I've taken a class to deal with those issues if it's uh, relevant. So please feel free to do that, but I'm not trying to be exhausted. This is not a how to parent or how to be a husband. It's the principles that undergird those things. And I trust God will apply them in each of your lives. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, 1 Peter 3, um, the verse number 1, the word of God tells us, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning, and let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold and of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Amen. May God be pleased again to bless his word uh, to our hearts. Remember, we're working on this foundational definition of marriage uh, derived from the language of Malachi chapter 2, that marriage is a covenant of companionship. Both elements are vital to a God-honoring marriage. Yes, it is indeed covenantal. It involves a leaving of father and mother, a cleaving to the spouse, and it has that public dimension in that regard. And it is the language of covenantal oath-bound promises. It's not a decision that can be dropped lightly. It is something, or it's not a decision that can be dropped at all. It is that covenantal promise that is an obligation to commit yourself to the other party till death you do part. 
It is that covenantal oath-bound obligation. And in so doing, it's a solemn arrangement. It's a sanctified arrangement in the sight of God. But it must also involve companionship. Again, we said before, there are those, and they are, they are very clear regarding their obligation. Oh, I'm married, that's it. But they don't function in that regard by being a proper companion in the things of God. And so both are required for the marriage to honor the Lord. But from that definition, I want to move on today to think a little bit about the function of marriage and God's ethical standards regarding how marriage is to function. And it will, you'll see, there's an overlap here. Much of this will flow, again, from what we've seen already. Again, in very simple terms, marriage is to function as a unity in equality and diversity. Again, I think that's some of the concepts the Word of God teaches, a summary statement. It is to involve unity. Two people become one in a union. And the challenge in that union is for those two who are one to live out their equality in Christ, whilst practicing diversity in role, whilst knowing again this unity of purpose. So you've got to think of all those areas. And again, sometimes I think issues have arisen in marriages because of a breakdown of understanding in some of these areas. They lack unity of purpose. Again, the people are going in different directions in their lives and that causes great problems. Or else there may not be an awareness of equality in Christ. And there may be a lack of, of fair and kind treatment of the other party. But of course also, there may be a, a usurping of the various rules. And therefore there's not a practicing of proper diversity. And so I think as a summary statement, this helps. It helps us in a Monday morning. How am I to live a, a married life in unity, in equality, whilst treasuring or diversity? I think such will please the Lord each and every day going forward. And so let's begin with the thought of unity. Unity. Unity of purpose, unity of focus, unity of goal. The two become one. Of course, that involves, and there is a a physical union, but there is a union of spiritual purpose. That's very important. does not mean that there's never a disagreement. But remember, the two become one, and there is one head, and the husband to act as the head and to drive this matter of, of the direction and the unity of purpose in view. The husband directs in that regard, yes, but... It is to be in sweet unity. There is this this agreement amongst the two parties, now one, with regards to their purpose. And in general, I'm going to give you three ideas here that I think are biblical ethics when it comes to the general purposes in marriage. Again, not exhaustive, uh, but most things in the marriage will come under these categories. There will be a unity in a desire to live in godly content. Contentment. Now that will govern things like the workplace, it will govern ambition, it will govern finances, it will govern many areas of the practicalities of Christian living in the home, but it has this issue of, of really encouraging each other to live in godly contentment, living under the kind providence of God. There's an interesting text, First Thessalonians chapter 4. Please turn back. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Now what I'm going to show you here, I'm, I'm showing you a text that really summarizes 
the purpose of God as we live in this world. It's a text that I don't think is properly valued. And I think it should be in a higher place in our minds. But as Paul writes to the Thessalonian believers, and again, remember, a key issue for them is the Lord's return. And how they live in light of the Lord's return. Well, here, verse 11, that ye study, and the idea there is be diligent to be quiet, to do your own business, and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that ye may have lack of nothing. It's a sense of, well, how do you live in this world? You're industrious, you're diligent, but you do so in a spirit of contentment. You mind your business, you work with your own hands, you get what God gives you, and you do so in a way that therefore is honest towards those that are without. This is the Christian testimony. It's a powerful testimony. Sometimes I think we've got to do something different. We've got to be this extravagant, out, uh, outwardly going personality that is in the face of everyone in the public square. Well, some have those gifts and those callings, but the essence of Christian living in a fallen world is just do what you must do. Do it unto God. Do it with integrity. Do it honestly. Do it in a contented spirit. And if that is the general purpose of living in this world, And the marriage is a help to that. And so God gives a wife to a husband to be a a suitable help and support in that regard. Then this should be their unified purpose. So a new couple get married. What are we going to do? We're we're going to to retire before we're 45. Um, We're going to have four houses and we're going to do all of these things. Now, those things may be possible in God's providence... But it is right and proper for a new couple to have a very humble ambition when they start off in the Christian life. We want to live a life where we're content with what God brings in our path. And we'll do so without murmuring or complaining. And we'll seek to live godly. We'll work hard. We'll be industrious in the things of God. That is a God-honoring ambition for a marriage. And the marriage should have that unified purpose. So that's, that's not very spiritual. Oh, it is very spiritual, because it's very biblical. And so having that unified goal in that regard, I think, is very important. There's also the issue then, and here we're looking more at the spiritual. So the first one, of course, deals with the practical in terms of really uh, living in contentment in regards to... Well, questions back. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so to do your own business, it's not kind of not being nosy. So the question was asked, just again for those who are watching on and listening in later on, the, the question was asked, the, the phrase there in verse number 11, doing your own business, um, what's the application of that in modern ideas? I think the point of all of this in Thessalonians is encouraging them to work. It's to do with their industry. If a man does not work, he shall not eat, uh, in the second letter. And so the idea here is of, of being industrious in your own affairs. And what was happening, the idea was that there were those who were saying the Lord's returning, but then they were drawing financial support from the church, and they weren't doing their own business. Okay, so I think that's the idea that's involved. They just, as I say, do your own calling. Remember, that this is Reformation Sunday. Uh, the idea that came out of the Reformation was in, uh, enlarged by the Puritans in many ways was the idea of vocation. And vocation and calling that wasn't just something that belonged to a, a minister or a pastor, but each and every person had a calling. 
A calling that ultimately comes from God and his providence. And that calling, you know, the, the high calling of motherhood. What a calling that is. The dignity of doing your calling to the glory of God. Or the calling to be, again, a, a teacher or a lawyer or whatever it may be. Whatever your calling may be, you do it to the glory of God. You mind your business. And you realize that your calling is not secular. So it's not this idea that you've a, you've a secular life and a spiritual life. But this idea that your, that your secular life, your ordinary life, is spiritual in its pursuit. And as to the glory of God. That's the idea, I think, in that reference. Okay, so then the second issue. And they were, were definitely thinking more in the spiritual realm. Seeking to promote the other's Christ-likeness. A unity of purpose. And this, of course, it arises out of God's will for us individually again. What is the will of God for you today? That you be conformed to the likeness of Christ Jesus. And so if that's the will of God for the individuals as they come into marriage, then that should be the will of God for the union of the marriage. And it should be the desire of the spouse for the other. God wants them more like Christ. Therefore, I must want them more like Christ. And doing everything you can in the life planning to say to yourself, how can we promote Christ's likeness? This governs how you live. It governs your encouragement. So you, you, you get a situation, again, this is a, an extreme example, where the Sunday morning comes around and the husband says to the wife, I'm kind of tired today. I've had a busy week. I think I'm going to lie in and I'll, I'll catch up later on. And the wife's going to church and the husband's in bed. Again, in such a situation, you want the wife there to act as a spiritual driver. Get up, you lazy so-and-so, and get to church. Because I want to promote Christ-likeness. There's this burden of heart. Again, please understand, that's an extreme example. And there are times due to illness that that's completely inappropriate. You understand that. I'm just giving you a general application to this regard. We are seeking to drive each other on in the things of God. And so there's an encouragement for devotional lives. You know, seeking to encourage. And again, I say that sometimes there are those of you and you've got very young children. Husbands, do everything you can in your power to help your wife have time to spend time with the Lord privately. And without the children climbing all through her hair. If you can help her in that regard, do so. Because your burden is to promote her Christ-likeness. In the same way for the wives. You may have to say to your husband, Dear, you're working too hard. I understand your desire to provide for us, but you're backsliding, you're falling away from the Lord, you're too diligent in your work, and you're forsaking the assembly of the church, or prayer meeting, or spiritual time with yourselves. And it's this matter of mutual encouragement, promoting Christ's likeness. You get the points. There's a unity of purpose. That's unity. It's this idea that we're driving in the same direction. We're not going in different ways. It's not one going east, one going west. We're heading the same way, and that is pursuing Christ in our home. You know, when that happens in reality, it's the most wonderful thing. That a husband has the humility to listen to the rebukes and the counsel of his wife. And the wife is, again, knowing the blessing of a husband sanctifying her as Christ sanctifies the church. These things are, are rich in their blessings. And so that's a second unity. Yes, just go ahead. Yeah, so I am, yeah, I'm going to come to that, okay? So 
what I'm saying right now, so Jesus asked the question, I'm dealing with, with, with two believers, absolutely. Okay, so we're looking at the ethics of Christian marriage. And I suppose, well, this is a Christian assembly. We're here as a, as a body of believers by and large, and we're here together. But what I'm saying in, in many ways, this is God's perfect will for marriage. So you, you look at the perfect will of God, and God's perfect will is two parties in Christ Jesus, uniting in Christ Jesus, and then pursuing God's will for marriage. Anything less than that is an effect of the fall. You know, so that's the idea. That, and so you set the, the elevation. In some ways, if there are unbelieving young people here, get them to Christ for the benefit of your marriage in the future. I would say it without any shame. Be in Christ Jesus. Know the Spirit of God in your life for the benefit of your marriage going, going forward. So yeah, it is. And I said we're going to come in the next heading to the issue of, 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 the, of the yoke and the equality of the yoke that is, is assumed in all of this. And perhaps in hindsight, I should put the slides the other way around. But anyway, I didn't do that. So, But yeah, it's a good question. All right, so the third thing then is this issue of raising children in the Lord. Again, it's a unified purpose again. If God does bless the children, again, that's not always the case. But if it is the case, there's a unity of purpose with regards to parenting. Again, this often raises the most difficulties in, in home life. Where there are different ideas regarding the purpose uh, of parenting and the role of parents in the lives of children. And it can be very, very divisive. And so you want, by God's grace, to have a unity of purpose in that regard. Now let, me, let me prove it to you once more. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. You know the reference well. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother. And then the promise is given there, verse number 3, and then verse 4. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And what I think we see here again is the unity of responsibility. Again, the father has a particular role as head of the home, and they also are able to fall prey of particular sins in that regard. Verse 4. Now, the father may well be the one who in a particular sense will bring wrath about in the children as they exercise headship. And so their headship has to be conducted in such a way that they do so with great wisdom. But verse 4 does not exonerate the mother from her obligation to also be a directive role in the family. Children obey your parents. And so whilst verse 4 highlights the father's responsibility, it does not exonerate the mother who can take her hands off and she can be the nice one that the kids like to be with. And the father who comes to disciplinarian, no, there must be unity. You've got to pursue unity. And please, if I can speak to some of you again, as your children get older, do not let your children divide your marriage. That they see, they see an angle to one parent and they get their way through one parent and then they divide this unity. If God's purpose is unity... The devil's desire is disunity, and the devil will use your children to divide your marriage. And you've got to guard that with all of your hearts before God on your knees praying for grace that such would not happen. You must have unity of purpose. And so at times you may, as a, as a parent, you may say to your kids, we're not sure about this particular issue. But rather than us divide on the issue, we're going to wait. We're going to think. We're going to pray together, and then we'll come up with a unified idea. And so there's not this idea that, well, the kids are, I know the one to go to. 
So you've got to be careful in these regards. Unity. You see, go back to Proverbs chapter 1. Again, just want to show this. So the language, of course, Ephesians chapter 6 is drawn, of course, from the, uh, the language of the fifth commandment. And, of course, the commandments, they show us the path of wisdom. And therefore, when you see wisdom in Proverbs, you're going to see this fleshed out in Proverbs regarding wisdom. What is wisdom when it comes to parenting? Well, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8, My son, hear the instruction of thy father, and forsake not the law of thy mother. Again, for the young people here, you have no right to disobey your mother. If your mother says something and father's away in business at some point, or they're away somewhere else, and you think, well, dad hasn't said it, therefore I can wang and wear this. No, the Bible is very, very clear. There's a mutual unity of purpose. The instruction and the law of father and mother is one in the sight of God. You get the same in Proverbs chapter 6 and the verse number 20. Again, just saying the same thing, really, but note the commandments again. My son, keep thy father's commandment and forsake not the law of thy mother. It's very, very clear. I don't think I need to expand upon that much at all. You see the principles. I've given some application in terms of illustration. But may God help us to be unified in our marriages. And again, I say, you go through the director, you're praying for the families. Pray for God to unite Christian marriages according to his will, that they have a single focus of purpose. It's very, very important in the things of God. Any comments or questions before we move on to what I should have already covered but didn't? Uh, so we'll go, we're going backwards here. All right, let's move on. So unity, that's the first issue. This is an issue of unity. And of course, unity comes in light of equality. Because in Christ, there is full equality of standing. The man is no more a saint than the woman in this regard. So turn, please, to Galatians chapter 3. Our acceptance in Christ is not altered by ethnicity or by genetics. That's a very important principle. Galatians chapter 3, the whole context, of course, is dealing with our standing as Gentiles in the covenant that God made with Abraham. That gracious covenant, the nations of the earth being blessed, and that all that are in faith, they're children of Abraham, they're, they're the sons of God. And you get the verse number 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, and there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. My please, please do not ever, I, know, I don't think you ever would, but do not use this in some way to deny the gender distinctive, the binary gender distinctive. That God has made them male and female. Male and female. In God's image made he them. There's a clear biblical principle of the binary genetic distinction between male and female. This does not remove that. It's describing our standing in Christ. How do I know that? Well, because those who were converted as Jews, that didn't change their ethnicity. And for many of them, they still practiced some of the ceremonies and the feast days. And they were allowed to do so. And they were Gentiles and they were, they, were, they were allowed to be proud citizens of their Roman Empire even. You think of Philippi. They were to live out that as becometh Christians, becomes the gospel, Philippians 1.27. But they were still allowed to live as citizens 
in that idea, that issue. And so the same is true. You don't suddenly change or you lose your distinctive genetics when you become a Christian. But it does underscore the issue of equality in Christ Jesus. Now, of course, and here I come to what Stacey was asking. This is only true in the context of an equal yoke. Okay, so whenever, whenever there is an unequal yoke in marriage, I'm describing the marriage of a believer and unbeliever, that then makes the performance of Christian marriage truly impossible. There may be functioning, there may be, again, in the eyes of the world, a functioning marriage, but there will be deficiencies in the proper outworking of the Christian principle of marriage. So let me just take a couple of moments to underscore this. First uh, Corinthians chapter 7. It's, of course, dealing with the issue of the, of the widow. The whole chapter, of course, deals with marriage and singleness. And again, it can be single unto the Lord for the glory of God. What a wonderful thing that is. But you've got there verse number 39. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will. Only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. And of course, it is this idea that a Christian wife, or Christian widow, sorry, will only pursue to marry in the Lord. And it's obvious what's involved there. It is the idea of in the sight of the Lord and in the unity of the two parties coming together in Christian marriage. Of course, similarly, you've got 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This is a portion that's perhaps better known, 2 Corinthians 6. And this is so many. This, uh, the idea of 2 Corinthians 6 goes well beyond marriage. But it has this idea of the unequal yoke. Of course, the yoke refers to the cattle, the oxen, and the yoke going across their shoulders. And there's equality enabling both parties to push in the same direction. It's the idea that they're, they're yoked equally and one party's not pushing a different direction than the other oxen, or the other ox. And so you have there verse 14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship with righteousness, with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness. So again, if I can just make the obvious application. If it is not God's will to marry unequally, then for young people it is not God's will to date or to court unequally. It's an obvious application. You don't pursue a relationship that's outside of the Lord that may well lead towards marriage. You make sure that you begin with the principle, this is in the Lord. Again, for some of you, again, young people, that may involve tremendous caution. That you will not run hurriedly into a relationship without first discerning the spiritual nature of the other party. So again, a young person, that happens so easily. They meet each other one day, they date the next day, they're married the third day. Not quite, but you, you get the idea. They run ahead of themselves without properly considering. The prudent man foresees the evil, hides, avoids it, seeks to avoid it. And so a prudent man, a prudent woman will see the potential for an unequal yoke going forward and hide themselves from that by showing caution in that relationship. So be wise. And seek to understand these things going, going forward in the sight of the Lord. Yes, sir. What happens if you weren't wise and you made a mistake and you yoked yourself to someone that's not righteous and now you're far down the path? How do you come back from that? 
Okay, so the question is asked, well, what happens in a situation that somebody has, has made a mistake and they find themselves in, in the unequal, unequal situation? Well, I suppose in basic terms, the covenant stands. So the marriage covenant stands, and you then find yourself in the situation like you have in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, where the wife finds herself married to an unbeliever, and that she, that the man has heard the word, disobeyed the word, but she lives before him with her godly conversation, seeking to live for the Lord. And so there is a situation where, yes, tragic, this does happen, sir. It does happen in that regard, where you have the brokenness of marriages, as people have not given, they haven't had good counsel, they haven't been wise in their actions. Uh, well, they are, they are seeking God for his grace and his mercy to live in light of where they are right now. You, you often can't reverse time. But one of the things that encourages me, the Lord is gracious. He restores the years that look as Eden. And that principle in Joel, the idea that not you get your years back, but the lack of fruitfulness of those years can be restored as we humbly get before God and seek the face of God. Now, again, that's a very general answer to a question. That will very much differ as from one couple to another. It's a very personal issue in terms of how it goes forward in practical terms. But in a general sense, the covenant stands. And it's a case of doing what you can before God to go forward in the, in the will of God. It's a very important question. It's very common. Um, uh, they have a very common situation. And so, if we have this idea of the... Yes, is he? Amen. That's a very important point. So this made the issue. And I, again, I didn't mean to answer in that. If it came across that way, I apologize. I, I wasn't trying to give the idea you've made your bed lie on it. It's really recognizing God's providence in your life. You've made a commitment. And therefore, the honoring thing is to live out that commitment going forward and doing what you can to do that in a sanctified fashion. What you said is very important. We find it very hard to forgive ourselves. Oh, I, know, I don't think you were. But, no, that's, but I just, I'm, I'm conscious... You know, it's, it's so easy when it comes to applying biblical principles in these regards that, you, that you're misunderstood and it can go in a different direction. So it is all in grace. It's all in God. So, amen. I'll take Dan first. Now, I've got two hands. Somebody else will dance first. Yeah. Let me take it forward. So Dan's made the point that there is a forgiveness from God's grace, but there are consequences from mistakes that we make. And I think one of the things that's got to come, and I, I, so I, I preface everything today by saying this is not exhaustive, and I, I don't want this to become a, a sort of a, a marriage counseling session going forward. I've, I've tried to get this very general in principles, but one of the things that, that sadly happens sometimes is people, they, they fall into sin in their marriage choices and then to get out of that, they sin again. 
And so they break the marriage, they commit divorce, so they, they end up getting adultery. And so they, they try to fix the problem by doing other things that are also unrighteous. And so when you find yourself in a consequence due to your own sin, the pathway forward must be righteous. And you've got to seek, well, how can I, from this point forward, as you say, Dan's good quoting from Philippians, forgetting the things behind, pressing forward. Christine, I'll take your... That's a really important point. Yeah, so, so Christina's mentioned in the text the, the unbelieving, sanctifying the, the husband or the wife, the spouse, and that. It's the first kind of seven, I think it's part of that first kind of seven passage. And so you get this idea of, well, therefore, I can, I can marry an unbeliever, and through that marriage, that kind of a sanctifying effect on, on the other party. That does actually happen sometimes. There are sometimes, in, in reality, that that does happen. But it's not God's will for you to pursue that. And the idea of sanctifying there it doesn't, it's not implying salvation. It's the idea that even the parents sanctifying the children, there's no guarantee the children being converted in that regard. It is the fact that that word sanctify at times can have the idea of a, of a religious separa- separateness. And so the husband is benefiting by the believing wife. Uh, there's a spiritual benefit in that regard, but it's not guaranteeing salvation at all in that, in that context. Yeah, this is all helpful, helpful in terms of get, giving some fleshing out of these issues. So there is this equality, and our time is gone for today. We need to stop for now. But, and I'll start here in two weeks' time of communion next week. Uh, so in two weeks' time, I'll start here again. But one of the applications of this leads back to what we said regarding promoting God's Christ-likeness. And what we said regarding companionship. The equality in Christ means that the husband treats his wife as his sister. As a sister in the Lord. And that has such an impact. And so when I often, when I often do premortal counseling, the very first thing I will do is I will tell the couple, you're marrying a sinner. And we'll set that out. And so prepare yourself for much disappointment. And recognize that they are not going to be who you think they are at times. They're going to let you down. They're going to do things that are not Christian. In your marriage, you're marrying a sinner. He is a saint. The principle, biblical principle of sanctification whereby we are still wrestling with sin but we're, we're set apart by God, we're holy unto the Lord and that, that means the Lord loves your sinful spouse. Therefore, you must love your sinful spouse. The Lord is patient with your sinful spouse. There, you must be patient with your sinful spouse. And so you get how, how important these principles are of treating your spouse with a profound respect. They're a child of God. You know, I, can you imagine if you're marrying a prince of some realm and you were to treat this prince with a disdain and disrespect? Can you imagine the king of the realm coming and saying, are you treating my son like this, my daughter like this? Do you know, don't you know who they are? Well, of course, on a human level, that's met by all manner of complications, but in God's standard, we're a child of the king. 
And how dare you treat a child of the king in a manner that's just disrespectful and unkind. Selflessness in marriage comes out of this principle. We are one in Christ Jesus. George. Yeah, it's helpful. Right? That's good. It's a good comment. It's a good comment because you got to say we we don't get the happily ever after in this world. That's true individually, and it's certainly true. There's sanctification in our marriage, and I think it's important to realize that being a Christian in marriage leads to some of those conflicts and difficulties. One, you become a target of the devil, and so there's this 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 idea that the devil's not going to leave you alone in your in your Christian marriage. And the more you pursue sanctification, the more resistance. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a battle, and that's true. If, if you want to drift through life without pursuing Christ, you'll, you'll find, well, it's not so difficult, really. But you want to strive after godliness, you will find that challenging. It's also worth remembering that if you find yourself looking at an unbelieving couple and thinking, oh, look at, look at all they have, and they're so happy, and they've four holidays a year, and they like each other, and they're best of friends, and you can, this is a genuine issue. That can be a real challenge. As George has said, sometimes the unbelievers, they seem to have a, a better marriage than we hear believers. Please read Psalm 73. It's the same principle. Uh, without any warfare, they prosper. The wicked prosper. Why do the wicked prosper? And then I knew their end. And so realize again, that do not be envious of the wicked. And whatever their external prosperity seems to be do not envy them in those things uh, we haven't gone very far today but i trust it's been edifying and helpful and uh, may god help us to pray for each other and encourage each other in these things uh, and let's all by together now as we close in prayer heavenly father we thank you again for the opportunity to reflect upon the ethical standards of your word how different they are from the world and we pray you give us the grace to walk holy with thee that we be humble and upright Help us in our marriages. Bless the families of this church. O Lord, may your favor rest and abide upon us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.